This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. A very good evening, and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio. I'm going to be your admin for tonight. I'm inviting in Tom Rogers, who is going to be your host. A very warm welcome to those of you listening live, and also listening back. And a reminder that you can catch all of our spaces from the last 30 days on our website, ttradio.org forward slash spaces. Tom Rogers, take it away. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out, with Teachers Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. I hope you are well. Welcome to Teachers Talk Radio, as Tom just said, and thank you very much for admin in this, Tom, uh, with us today and tonight. Really appreciate that. Um, yeah, Teachers Talk Radio, late show. We are here at a weird time, actually, of 8.30. Usually it would be 7.30, um, and in fact, my regular time is 7.30, but on this wonderful occasion, uh, we've got Catherine Burblesing, who's very kindly given up a bit of time to speak with us this evening about all things education um and we're going to be going through plenty of stuff actually i'll just make sure Catherine can hear me first Catherine, you have to click that little unmute icon bottom left hand side oh hello good evening how are you i'm fine thank you how are you excellent not too bad um i i before we do anything uh i'm gonna just give a plug for some of our our sponsors and advertisers this evening. Um, we've got With a Slack group, and um, With a Slack, huge supporter of us, uh, leading provider of specialist education and care, and they have a huge number of recruitment opportunities available right now. All you have to do to check them out is go to withaslackgroup.co.uk forward slash careers. We're going to hear from two of our other sponsors as we move through the show this evening. Um, first things first, Catherine, uh, what have you been up to today? I've been at school, <laughs> usual stuff. And how was it? Um, yeah, it was good. We had an inset day, so um, uh, lots of meetings with meetings with staff, and well, I don't know the usual thing. Really, yeah, it was good. The usual, the usual palaver. Um, I was going to ask you. Obviously, we can't get away from the whole uh, leadership contest, can we? To start with, so I suppose I should ask oh. you briefly. First of all, your reaction. A, to the leadership contest and whether you think it's a good thing that we're having the leadership contest. And the second thing, how would you vote if you were voting in the leadership contest? As in, would you vote to get rid of Boris or would you vote to keep him? Yeah, I don't know, really. I don't know enough to be able to say. Although I have to say, I was looking at the cover of, I think it was the Metro, and I looked at his hair and I thought... That hair, I mean, really, you know, he should be voted out just on that hair alone, um, is what I thought. Um, you know, the kind of all the details, I have to say I haven't really followed it that well, but I think he's been pretty bad. Um, well, he seems know, to have lied him. a few times, doesn't he? Yeah, exactly, and that's bad. I mean, I sort of, 
I mean, I have to say I'm busy, you know, doing stuff like running the school. Yeah. <laughs> so I haven't taken enough notice to be able to say for sure. Although, as I say, I looked at that hair and thought, you know, there's a reason why we have a haircut policy at school. Um, hair, the way you dress, it means something. And I looked at him and thought, how can we have the country in your hands with your hair looking like that, is what I thought. Um, and so, you know, if he gets voted out, I think the hair will have something to do with it. If he was to be voted out, is there anyone who you look at right now within the Conservative Party and think they'd be a good leader? Um, again, I don't know enough, really. Yeah. Uh, I suppose if there were somebody who was really exceptional who jumped out at me, then I'd be able to say. So yeah. far, I don't. I don't know. I, I just, I can't say. I, I, I really don't know. Um, I just haven't been paying enough attention. Um, but no doubt, uh, although I have to say, I don't actually think he is going to get voted out right now. Um, no. Half the votes, don't you? So um, I don't think that will happen. Although from what I understand, uh, when leaders come under this kind of uh, scrutiny, um, they tend to get, you know, doesn't they tend to get kicked out quite soon after. So, you know, they, they'll leave within the year. So I suppose there will be a leadership context, uh, contest at some point uh, soon enough, is what I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I mean, don't worry, we're not going to kind of labour this. I mean, we may come back to it at nine o'clock just to see if we know what the result of it was. But we're not going to labour it in this, in this conversation. Um, we are, by the way, we've just put a tweet out. Do you have a question for Miss Snuffy? Catherine Burble sing tonight. If you do, tweet us the question, use the hashtag TT Radio, and we might invite you to ask it in person to Catherine, or at the very least, we will read it out. We've got about 50 people in already. Thank you very much to everyone who's who's arrived in the space. Uh, Mr. Gordon, good evening. Mr. Rogers, that's not me, another one. Um, Lucy, Tahima, uh, Paul, Nathan, Sinead, Miss E.H., Miss Kendall, Mr. C., Miss Evans. Oh, God, the list goes on. We've got loads and loads of people who are, who are here. So good evening to you all. Thank you for joining us. Let's move on to education, Catherine, because well, that I... I am a real expert at. So Now, <laughs> here we go. There we go. Right. Now, the other week, I was very privileged to watch the um, very interesting uh, documentary about Michaela that was aired on ITV obviously a couple of weeks ago. And there's quite a few questions I've got on the back of that. Now, okay. uh, before we get into that, one of, one of the articles I've read recently on Tez, it actually was there, I think, last week. I'm going to read you a quote from it. Um, this, was from, this was from a head teacher, actually, a, leader, a school leader. Mm -hmm. I banned shouting. Mm -hmm. No adult or child was allowed to shout in school. Mm -hmm. That was the key headline from that article. I wondered what your views are on that and in general, teachers in particular raising their voice. Because in the documentary, many people commented that teachers, I wouldn't necessarily say they shouted, but they certainly raised their voices. Yeah. So, so what's your view on that? What's your view on shouting? Yeah, I think it's a tool. Um, and I think it's a tool that needs to be used in a skilled way. So... You never want to shout when you're angry. Um, you want to shout with a particular purpose uh, and it needs to be fast and quick uh, so that it kind of cuts through. And um, so something like, how dare you, you know, and that mm -hmm. done quickly. You notice it's just three words. 
um, and then you bring it up, how dare you? I'm so disappointed in you. You know, that yeah. you come, boom, and then down. <laughs> and then when you, the, I'm so disappointed that you drop your voice and that's the disappointment. Oh, you've so let me down. That kind of thing. And um, it's a particular skill that you need to practice and you need not, you're not doing this because you're angry. So I think people yeah. often think of shouting as, you know, you're out of control and you're just shouting, you know, silence, I need silence and all this sort of thing. Uh, that shows uh, that you've lost control and that you've lost it. I mean, in the sense that yeah. you aren't going to gain control of the classroom back. So that's a very bad idea. Um, but I do think it's a tool when used uh, cleverly and well, empowers you as a teacher. But that's something that needs practicing. It needs a certain set phrases that you can come out and do quickly. Um, and really, and you never want to do that, I would say, just to one child somewhere. That's not the point. The point is to do it in, a, in an environment where there are other children. So there's a little bit of a... <gasps> You know, you mm. want you want there to be a slight. <gasps> I mean, what you're what um, correct me if I'm wrong. What you're saying is you would use the raising of the voice as a tool in a kind of a, a theatric sense, maybe yeah, to exactly make right. a point. Yeah, exactly. And and to cut when I say cut through, it makes it so that everybody goes, oh, and then they, they they sit up and take notice. That you know, that's it. And um, and so. And and it's just it's just a tool. That's all. There are other tools. Uh, uh, you might say tracking me or whatever it is. I mean, that's that's yeah. another tool. Um, there there are a million different tools that a teacher ought to have to be able to whip out at different times. And I think that's one tool that's really very useful. Um, and uh, and I don't think that we should disempower ourselves um, by not using it. Of course, think- not every head teacher will agree with me, and. And I fully believe in every head's right to run their school as they so wish. And so if a head wants to ban shouting in their school, well, then that's up to them. Uh, yeah. I don't wish to ban ha- shouting at my school. So um, that's what we do. I mean. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, let's stick on the theme of, of behavior for a mm-hmm. minute, because, um, again, uh, another kind of um, element that was highlighted within the documentary that was on mm-hmm. ATV was was silent corridors now do, do you think that i mean i i i think that 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 the issue of silent corridors perhaps isn't as contested maybe as as the shouting issue i think that was probably contested a little more but there are still obviously big critics of this idea of this regimented silence in all the corridors students with the, with their you know their heads down kind of walking around and and no interaction at all no no noise whatsoever in the corridors at any time with regards to the silent corridors in Michaela is it zero tolerance on silence i mean if a student said to a teacher oh excuse me sorry i've forgotten something from the lesson they're having a conversation in the corridor or it would that be exempt from this idea of silent corridors i mean how silent are the silent corridors well, it's true they're not actually silent in the sense that we all are saying good morning and good afternoon to each other as they walk past. But yeah. it, it is such a quick transition 
I mean, it would just never happen. No, no, no pupil would stop to talk to the teacher at that point. I mean, it just would never happen. <laughs> um, so everyone just moves very quickly into their lessons uh, in silence. And it means that you get more time in the lesson uh, in order to catch up your kids if they are behind their re chronological reading age, if they are... Um, you know, behind for a whole variety of reasons because you don't have a privileged intake, you want to have uh, those children in lessons for as long as possible. It means that children don't arrive late to the lessons. It means that no one swings the door open and interrupts the lesson five, ten minutes in um, uh, and everyone laughs and all that kind of thing. It means everybody arrives quickly, quietly. They get on with their learning right away. They're not miserable. It, you know, we have break time and we have lunch time where they're running around and playing basketball and table football and so on. Yeah. Um, I I do find it odd this idea that that corridor time is the time to dance around. I mean, it's just not the right time. There's a there's a there's an appropriate time for play, which is play time, and there's an appropriate time for learning. And this is learning time. You're moving from one lesson to the other as quickly as you can so that you can get on with your learning. I, I don't I don't really understand what the problem is. I mean, look, when we first started, we didn't start with silent corridors. We started with, with just quiet corridors. But what ends yeah. up happening, the reason why we went to silent is because it's impossible to enforce a, 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 a quiet corridor because children don't know at what level quiet is. And if Miss X thinks that quiet is you know, at a certain level, but Mr. Y down down on the next corridor thinks that it's a little bit softer than that, then how do you, you can't really enforce it. And it's not fair to punish children for a lack of clarity and consistency amongst the staff. The thing that silence does is that it just allows uh, everyone to have the same standard and it's easy to get your consistency. And consistency, so it's not that one is obsessed with silence as it were, just that we discovered, actually, if you want your corridors to be um, lovely, safe spaces, you need to go to silence because otherwise things will end up um, deteriorating through those inconsistencies. And consistency is gold when it comes to running a school well. You need to have consistency amongst your staff. So that's what the silence is about. Uh, the children, we don't really notice it. You know, you just, once it's established, it's just normal. And like you just said, would it be the case that, um, you know, a, a, a people would ask a teacher or something like that? They just never would. It literally would mm. never happen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like you say, I suppose not, not, not all schools may, may choose to do it, but certainly th there is a methodology behind it. And I know when you've talked about it before, you've, you, and, and not just silent corridors, but also, you know, any, any time in school, whether that be on the playground, in lesson time, or whatever, you've mentioned this idea of, of, um, kind of, I, I guess, bullying between students or, or the, the potential for things to happen um in in that space uh Gosh, when yes. when so when things yeah every every head teacher who i've known who has ad adopted these practices says my goodness has completely transformed the school for the better they suddenly don't have any incidents that they're running around after a you know after a changeover having to deal with um 
there's no shouting and screaming and running and, and, and slamming of doors and kids turning up late. All of that stuff just disappears. So it just means that all of those behavior incidents that you're having to chase all the time, imagine if those are just, imagine if they all disappeared, right? Imagine, imagine how much more time you would have to plan lessons, to um, spend talking to the children at lunch, to build relationships, to have fun with them. All, you reduce your incidents and you have more time for the children ultimately. And the silence really is not oppressive. It's just, uh, it's just another way of being. One way of being is talking, another way is being silent. You know, there's nothing wrong with either of them. They're both perfectly enjoyable. Um, but for some reason, we see it as somehow oppressive to ask children to be silent for a minute and a half while they move between the lessons. It really isn't a big deal. I mean, we just, we don't even notice it. Yeah. I mean, th th there is, you know, some commentators suggest that there is a an epidemic of, of kind of bullying and, and that sort of stuff happening in, in, in many schools. I mean, obviously you are the social mobility commissioner and I, I'm guessing that, you know, behavior in schools, um, in particular eradicating bullying and trying to stop bullying would be one of the things within that remit. And I wondered beyond the kind of doors of Michaela, what what's the answer to that? What's it what's the answer to this culture of of of, of bullying that, that that does exist in, in some schools? Yes. Well um I'd say that a lot of times for the problems in schools, we tend to think of uh, the kind of, what kind of plaster can we put over this? So we see the problem and then we think, how do we fix the problem? As opposed to how do we create a culture that would make sure that that problem didn't exist in the first place? And so uh, silent corridors are a great example of a culture and a system that means that many of those problems simply don't occur in the first place. Mm. And so it means that if all your children arrive to the lesson, ready to learn, uh, on time, there aren't going to be any disruptions, you don't have to quieten them down, you don't have to spend five to ten minutes doing a giving out a do now, you know, let me give you an exercise just to keep your heads down, I'm not going to teach you anything for the first five, ten minutes because I need you just to quieten down and calm down because there's been so much energy coming from the corridors and I'm slightly scared because I'm a new teacher and you might be rude to me and I just need to just get you to get your heads down. And the exercise is really very simple because you can't possibly risk teaching them something more difficult and really pushing on their learning. So the impact of the corridor has it is felt in the classroom in terms of how much you can expect of the children, how much you can push their learning on. And so when you mention social mobility, it's absolutely the case that um, for children who are trying to change their stars, who are trying to make it so that they can be socially mobile and move themselves up in society, whether that's financially or educationally, um, and, and, and have doors open to them that perhaps were not open to their parents, 
in order for them to do that, they are depending entirely on their school experience to give them the knowledge and skills that they need to be able to open those doors for them and to make a success of their lives. The more time they have in a classroom with a teacher being able to teach them and push them really and dr drive them, the more likely they are to be socially mobile. And so when we say to ourselves, gosh, these corridors make me feel uncomfortable, I'd rather everyone was kind of le leaping around and so on, which inevitably ends up with children shouting and screaming and running and pushing and turning up late to lessons and bullying that's going on, as you say, and so on. When that then happens, the children who most lose out in those situations are the ones who come from the most disadvantaged backgrounds. The ones, for instance, who have uh, fallen behind their chronological reading age are desperate to get into their lessons, to be able to be exposed to reading so that they can learn how to catch up with their peers. But if they're spending their time getting lost in chaotic corridors, they're not going to be able to do that. So. Um, Yes, I feel we help to enable social mobility when we have systems in our schools that will help uh, engage learning, that will expose children to more learning, that will enable them to have self-control over their own behaviors so that they are happy to exist in silence. They're happy to move quickly and quietly along the corridors so that they can enter into a classroom and be ready to learn. All of that um, way of being uh, is a habit that needs to be created and established over time in a culture and environment that celebrates that kind of behavior. And I would say one of those elements of that kind of culture is silent corridors. There are other elements. Yeah. Uh, silent corridors, is, I wouldn't even necessarily say it's the most important one, but no. that is certainly a key factor, I would say, in having an environment which will enable more children to be socially mobile. Um, in a minute, I'm going to ask you about slant, um, which you mentioned a couple of times in the documentary, um, which I think originates mm -hmm. from Teach Like a Champion by Doug Lamov, but certainly it's been mm -hmm. adopted in, in many schools. But we'll discuss that in a second. Before we do that, and I'm sure you love EdTech, Catherine. I know how much you love EdTech. Um, Steve Woods <laughs> is one of our great sponsors of this show. If you are interested in educational support in IT and computer science, Steve Woods is delivering a number of courses. And the Learn to Program in Python course is free. Catherine, would you believe it? Wow. And it's one, one hour where you could learn Python, um, Python coding. Do you know what? Can you can you code, Catherine, with Python? No, I can't, but I would love to learn. There you go. Everything works in a browser, so there is nothing to install beforehand. Join Steve remotely to learn the basics on Wednesday, the 8th of June, which in fact is in two days' time, between 4 and 5 p.m. Visit stevewoods.co.uk to start your journey. And, and I have to say that Steve is amazing. Um, he does our two-minute techs on Teachers Talk Radio. So if you have any tech questions or any tech tips that you need, he's a, he's a great person to get in touch with. Slant, Catherine. Yeah. Um, sit up, listen, ask and answer questions, nod your head and track the speaker. That's what it officially uh, kind of relates to. And it is a, a routine strategy from Teach Like a Champion. Um Today on Twitter through Teachers Talk Radio, we asked a question, what do you think about slant? Um, some of the, the, the responses were as follows. 
Uh, we've got Heather Greatbatch, who said it's a perform it's performative nonsense and a poor proxy for students actually paying attention. Barry Smith, what does the opposite look like? Slouching, not listening, not joining in, interrupting, looking around the room as opposed to the person talking to you. Um, Manaz says, would it be expected at staff meetings? Um, uh, <laughs> we've got uh, Callum has simply done a throw up emoji. I, I think that means he likes it. Um, we've got uh, Tom, and this is a comment actually that has been echoed a few times, Catherine, and maybe you can come in on this one. Tom says it's not very neurodiverse. Um, many of the other comments have, have, have talked about it, saying that it, 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 if you like, excludes some students because it doesn't accommodate their needs. Um, for example, Dr. Dunnett says there is no evidence that it helps students learn. Um, in fact, it could have the opposite effect by increasing cognitive load. If it doesn't help learning, it's just control and coercion. Hmm. What would you say to those comments, Catherine? Gosh, well, you know, it's just them sitting with their hands folded in front of them. It's really not such a big deal. I mean, the there's there's a couple of things that slant does for you. Um, when their hands are, when you can see their hands, it means their hands aren't under the table uh, with their pen, you know, gouging out the leg of the person next to them, whacking somebody on the back, doing all sorts of nonsense under the table. You know, that that's the main thing. So you want to be able to see their hands. Um, uh, and that slant manages to make that happen. You can see them right away. You might want to have their hands spread out. You might want to have them crossed over. I mean, I don't really care what you do. But the key thing is for teachers who are listening um, you're going to be in a much stronger position as a teacher if you can see the hands of your pupils in the classroom. Um, and what is great about slanting, because when they have their hands crossed like that, is that, um, uh, you, you, you know, sitting up straight, well, you do want them sat up because do you really want them falling off their chairs? I mean, certainly over the, my many years of teaching, there were kids who used to rock on their chairs and fall off their chairs and look half asleep on their chairs. Some of them would lie down on the desks and go to sleep. But again, if you're trying to enable your children to be socially mobile, you want a system that means that everyone is sitting up um, and that that's the expectation. The thing is, is that after a while, because I have to say, we sort of do slanting with our with our little ones, less so with the big ones. You know, it's a bit odd. You have your year 10s and your 11s all slanting like that. But, they, they, but what ends up happening, when I say slanting like that what i mean is little year sevens is very much come on sitting up straight hands up straight and all that kind of thing whereas in there in year 10 and year 11 there it's far less like that but what's happened is that by then they've gotten to the habit of sitting up straight and they don't think about it anymore they just do it automatically um and they just and that's a good skill to have and when they go for job interviews and when they're sitting at some business lunch later on in life sitting up straight won't be such a problem for them because they'll be used to it it'll just be part of their habits and that's what we're meant to be doing as teachers especially for those children from disadvantaged backgrounds we're trying to instill a whole load of habits in them so that when they are out in the world later they're more likely to have all doors open to them um as for neurodiverse, I don't. I, we've never had any issue with a single child not being able to slant. We've got an, a normal intake. We're in the inner city, a variety of SEN pupils. So 
I don't know why one would say that. It, I know. mean, I, I've, I'm not an expert on it. Maybe somebody can call in and 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 you know give this opinion out. But um, one of the comments on the post from today was from the Autistic Girls Network, and they said if you force an autistic child to look you in the eye, they will likely be unable to focus on anything you say. Um, that was a comment they made. It got 37 likes, so obviously quite a few people, whether they agreed with it or certainly, yeah, 37 people engaged with it. So, do, I mean, if that is true, does slant, and I'm asking this question openly because I'm, I'm not an expert on this, because uh, I've never used slant, actually, as, as a teacher either. But uh, I suppose I'm asking somebody, and I'm asking you, Catherine, if you know, is is this true that if you force an autistic child to look you in the eye they will likely be unable to focus on anything you say well it depends on how autistic they are um so you know we had the key thing to remember here is that you never want to ask a child to do something that they cannot do that would be wrong so as an example uh, we have six flights of stairs. There are some children at school who have physical impairments. So they take the lift up the stairs. But I wouldn't let everyone take the lift uh, because that would be wrong. And obviously no one would get anywhere because there's only one tiny lift. Um, but it would be wrong to ask uh, one of our children who, you know, let's say, you know, she, she can't, you know, she has issues walking. Mm. She really can't climb the stairs. So we certainly wouldn't insist she climbs the stairs. So that yeah. that's the case for any number of issues that any particular child might have. But what I would say is that too often we use labels to lower our expectations of children. And so you need, and the difficulty is you've got to find the balance. And, and there's no question that there is always a difficulty in doing that. But I would say, generally speaking, uh, I think we lower our, uh, our standards for children far too often because we take the label and we say, oh, therefore it'd be wrong to ask them to do X. And I would always say, just see how much they can do. See how much you can push them. And that's the case for any child, whether they're SEN or not. You know, for instance, in terms of ability, one might say, well, this child is, 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 is averaging, I don't know, fives on their GCSEs, for instance, they're going to get fives. But what if that child actually would be able to get sevens if only uh, you pushed them a little harder and demanded more homework of them or demanded that they sit up properly or demanded that um, they turn up to lessons on time or demanded that they were focused right from the start of the lesson? All of these tiny little changes will change, the, will improve the overall achievement for your children. And I don't just mean in terms of um, their academic achievements, in terms of their GCSEs, I, you know, and their grades. I mean the kinds of people who they will become. So uh, one of the things that people always say at our school is that children are so kind to each other. They're so n loving and, and decent and helpful to each other. So um, isn't that what we want for all children? Do we not want them to be kind to people? Do we not want them to look after each other? Um, I'm very proud of, of what we do for the whole child, not just for their academic results. But then it's also the point about academic results. I mean, if we're trying to enable social mobility, don't we want children from disadvantaged backgrounds to be able to access the highest possible grades that they can get? Don't we want them to fulfill their potential? And if that means uh, having them 
uh, keep their hands above the tables and uh, sitting up straight and looking at the teacher, if that means that they're going to do better in their GCSEs, if that means that they're then not being horrible to each other by bullying each other underneath the tables, isn't that something that we would want? I mean, I don't know why we wouldn't all want that, really. It's a, str it's a strong case. Listen, if anybody wants to kind of throw their two pennies in on this, then just hit that call request button on the bottom left-hand side and you can say your two pennies. Um, we're going to actually move on to something else now, Catherine, but if anybody wants mm -hmm. to go back to anything we've discussed in the last 30 minutes, then please do. By the way, Catherine, how long have I got you here for? <laughs> I don't know. I was going to ask you the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, don't worry. We can do another. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a few more questions. Um, okay. Singing of the national anthem mm -hmm. in, in schools and assemblies. Do, do students sing the national anthem at Michaela? Yes, they do. How, so do how often? How often? Um, how often? I suppose they're doing it once a week, I suppose. Yeah, because they do it at my assembly, so they see me once a week. So, yeah, they'll do it once a week. Okay. Okay. Now, I put the question again through Teachers Talk Radio this morning. Singing of the national anthem in schools and assemblies, thoughts? Do you think people are going to have positive thoughts about this, Catherine? No, I don't think they'll have positive thoughts. <laughs> <laughs> I'll read you. I'll, I'll read you some of the comments. D don't um, don't take these to heart. <laughs> oh, don't Mark worry. I I can well imagine what they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't worry. They're not that bad, actually. Mark Whitaker says no thanks. Well, thank you, Mark, for that comment. We've got. Six stars, that, that's his Twitter name. Don't know what that means. Absolutely not, never. Uh, ben Burrows, at appropriate occasions, sure, but otherwise it feels a little token. Uh, we've got um, the anonymous teacher who says they sing the national anthem in Australia each week. Well, I didn't know that. Do they? Don't know. Well, you know, I grew up in Canada and we sang the national anthem every single day. Um, you know, the thing well, is... Well, they, they do in America, don't they? So. Well, it's perfectly oh. normal in many countries to sing one's national anthem. And there's a reason for that. Um, why, do you um, think people, why do you think people are against the idea then? I mean, there are those who are pro. I mean, Ian Slade has commented saying, why ever not? I really don't understand the, the problem. Um, so there are those who, 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 who would say yes to it. Um, yes. Well, OK, so let me explain to you why we ought to sing the national anthem, especially us. Um, and when I say us, what I mean is we're in the inner city. We've got lots of children from a whole variety of different backgrounds. And the thing is, is that as a country, we, we need to all get along with each other. And um, when you're in a multicultural, multi-ethnic environment, uh, the country, Britain, is the one thing that we've got in common because we'll have different religions, we've come from different races, different cultures and all types, but we are all British. And that is something that we want to celebrate because it's the thing that we have in common with each other and it's the thing that we want to be grateful for because we're grateful to our country for having the rule of law and for having democracy and, and, and the freedoms that we enjoy here. And to recognize how wonderful it is to live in this country. And so when we sing God Save the Queen, look, I am really not a royalist at all. I mean, I don't have plates at home with the Queen's face on it and things like that. I don't even know what 
you know, I, I don't even know the different members of the royal family. I mean, I know there's Kate and William and I don't know anyone. I mean, I, I, this is not, I'm not a royalist. I do it because I want to create a culture at school where we all belong. And belonging is really important, in particular, I would say, for ethnic minorities. And I say this as an ethnic minority myself, someone who sort of grew up around the world and never really felt like I belonged anywhere. And that is a great, um, I would say, disadvantage when you don't feel you belong to your country. And I'd say too many ethnic minorities end up feeling that way for a whole variety of reasons. Some of that is historical racism. Some of that is... Um, the media and all of us refusing to kind of recognize ethnic minorities as being British. And people would say, what do you mean we refuse to recognize them as being British? Well, all it, it, often it's, well, where are you from? And, you know, what's your, what, what is really your country? And this is not, our my country is Britain. You know, I, I've been here now for over 30 years and I very much feel British. And I'm very grateful to my adopted country for taking me in. And I want our children to feel British. And so when we sing God Save the Queen, we also sing Jerusalem and I vow to thee my country. So we mix them up. So actually, God Save the Queen is is only every once every three weeks or whatever, if you see what I mean. Like, we, we, we oh, I mean, it's not, you know, we're not singing God Save the Queen every single week. Um, and uh, we do this. We also celebrate, um, you know, when the World Cup was on. In, in the documentary, you see our English flags up because we're celebrating England. Uh, we have a British flag outside the school. Uh, we will celebrate the Queen's birthday every year. And we do this. Oh, when I say celebrate it, you know, we have a little lunch with, you know, uh, cakes that are blue and white and red and things, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and we do this to say, look, we're all British. Isn't this fantastic? And and, and it's also an opportunity to teach children gratitude. And I think it's really important to teach children gratitude. I mean, in the because the documentary that was on ITV was 45 minutes, but there's a longer, yeah. twice the length documentary, which is 90 minutes, which um, you can access on the um, producer's website, which is uh, strictestheadmistress.com. And, um, and on there, I argue for all of these things. I think in the shorter documentary, many of these points were cut. Um, and... It, it's important for us all, one, to feel we belong, and two, for children to be grateful. So you want to teach them to be grateful for all the hard work of the teachers, for the marking of their work, for the planning of their lessons, for all the support their teachers give. We want them to be grateful to their families and the support they get from their families, but also grateful to their country. And it just gives you something else to narrate about gratitude. Um, and the reason why I think we should teach children gratitude is that they will be happier people for being grateful. However little they have, they should feel grateful for what they've got. And it will make them humble. It will make them decent. It will make them um, people who, again, when I said about being kind and nice and caring towards each other, you want a culture which is is like that, where the children are caring towards each other and aren't mean to each other, aren't bullying each other, aren't yeah. hating for each other in the toilets and all that kind of thing. Um, and that's the kind of environment that we've got. And it's one that is really lovely and, and one to be celebrated. And, uh, you know, uh, what's nice with the documentary is that you sort of see that in the documentary, but all of your listeners are very welcome to come and visit us. You just sign up on the website and come and see us at lunchtime and have lunch with the kids and have a tour and you'll see what I mean when you come. Um, and again, 
I don't see why anyone wouldn't want that, really. Uh, you know, the thing about Britain is that I find there are too many white British people who are sort of deeply ashamed of their country. And um, that that kind of white guilt, uh, I don't have, obviously, not being white. <laughs> and um, I don't think it's particularly helpful. I don't think it's helpful to ethnic minorities. I don't think it's helpful to our young people. Um, I don't think it's helpful to the country. And I think, um, you know, being able to shake off that white guilt <laughs> and just uh, being able to just feel proud, which actually I saw so many people doing over this Jubilee weekend, so many people waving their, their British flags, saying thank you to the Queen. You know, there's a, it was such a wonderful example. People thanking the Queen for her years of service to the country. And she has dedicated her life to serve the country and play her part. She wasn't able to have a normal life like the rest of us do. She gave her life in order to in order to fulfill her duty. And then that brings in the concept of duty towards others, something that we very much encourage amongst the children. You have a duty not to let the team down by misbehaving in your classroom. You have a duty to others to lend somebody a pen if somebody's missing one. You have a duty if somebody drops a plate in the dining hall, not to laugh and start banging on the tables, but to rush and help them pick it up and look after each other. So um, all of these ideas are kind of in sync, you see. They're all connected to each other. What would you, what would you say to those, though, on the, on the other side of this, the, the critics of what you've just said would probably say, well, the Queen is extremely privileged, as are many others. So therefore, you know, with that privilege comes, you know, obviously duties and so on and so forth. I mean, what would you say to that in terms of what, you know, why should we praise or you know glorify someone of this kind of level of, of privilege and wealth well because people are people whatever however wealthy they are and when they do something good uh like dedicate their whole life to their country <laughs> i think it's worth thanking them for um i think there's something odd about the idea that um i mean I don't know. There are people who are poorer than we are. Does that mean, you know, the, the idea that our children at school, if they're poorer than we are, should never thank us for uh, the, 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 the lessons we've planned and should never thank us for a lesson we've taught? There's some, there's, I find that a very odd way of seeing the world, that we should only thank people who are poorer than we are. Um, it, it, it rids us of our humanity. Uh, however privileged we are, we have agency. And however little privilege we have, we have agency. And we make decisions on doing the right thing or the wrong thing. And when we do the right thing, I think that should be recognized uh, by other people. And and we should always strive to do the right thing, whether we're privileged or not. Um, uh, you know, I don't understand that idea, really, of only uh, respect you know, respecting and being grateful to people who are poorer than ourselves. That doesn't make any sense to me. Um, moving on from there, it's kind of linked to the same thing, I suppose, is this idea, and it, it came through in the documentary again, of British values. Um, what would you say to those who say British values are universal values, but are not specifically British, or British values are defunct because Britain doesn't have 
you know, those particular values anymore and can't take the moral high ground. I mean, you know, you see these arguments there. I mean, what would you say to those who, who have a problem with this idea of British values in schools? Well, I think they should go and spend some time in many other countries. <laughs> I have spent time in some other countries. Um, I visited many places uh, and it makes me all the more grateful for Britain, really. Um, they're most definitely not universal, those values. Um, there are some other countries that will have some of those values, and that's great. I'm really pleased for those countries too. <laughs> um, but uh, they're by no means the majority of countries. Um, so I, I think people just don't realize uh, what it is like living in other countries. Um, I don't know, uh, the, uh, the caste system in India, for instance, um, where there's a whole caste of people who literally cannot even drink at the same from the same wells as mm. other people. I mean, like, where they're treated as, um, you know, I mean, uh, just, you know, as bad as can be. I mean, I, I, yeah, you could talk about... Um, countries where gay people are thrown off rooftops by the police force, um, where women are treated appallingly. I mean, there's so many different countries across the world where this is the case. Um, you know, I um, yeah. I have a, a, a couple at school, a lesbian couple, and uh, having been with us now for seven, eight years, and they're going off and they wanted to travel and uh, and they were going to go and live abroad. And then they started looking at where they could go. And they came to realize there weren't that many places in the world where they could go and be happy in the way mm. that they are here in Britain. I mean, and free, free to live their lives as they want to live them, not having to live in the shadows, you know. Um, we take for granted the freedoms that we have here. And that's what I mean about um, being grateful you know, not only should we teach our children gratitude, we need to be grateful ourselves for what we've got. Um, and it, it would make us happier to recognize that. And I suppose I've lived in other places and I have some sense of it. And in particular, my real love for Britain is, is to do with race, really. You know, I know what it's like um, as an ethnic minority living in other countries. And it is nothing as good as it is living in Britain. Let me, you know? let me ask you a question on, on that basis, Catherine, because this has come in from Mr. B. He's just tweeted this in. Do you think the success of your school is in part due to the culture of education rooted in the values of immigrants and ethnic minority communities? Would Michaela style work in vastly different demographics? Now, Mr. B doesn't give examples of the vastly different democratics, demographics, but perhaps he's talking about, you know, I don't know, northern coastal towns or something. You know, what 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 would your answer to that be? Yes, well, Barry Smith, who used to be one of our deputies, took all of these ways Mr. B of being... is coming, actually, to speak, I think, Catherine. So he might actually say it to you himself. Oh, I see. So we'll see if he, he wants to speak. I'm just connecting it all now. Mr. B, are you there? Hello, I am. Excellent. Hi, Would uh, you like to say what you were going to say in, in verbally? Yeah. Hi, Catherine. First of all, just wanted to say found hi, the documentary absolutely fascinating. Um, and it does it does link to what Tom was saying, for example. So I work in a, in a rural coastal area 
um, in the southeast of England with a with an overwhelmingly um, white working class majority native English um, demographic. And um, I'm an RE and PSHE specialist, so I'm always kind of looking at it from that perspective of culture and identity and things like that. Um, and you, I couldn't help but notice, obviously, in, in where you are in London, that's obviously a far more ethnically diverse. And what really came across was um, the values that came from um, the parents of your students and the support that was for education. Do you think that is in part, you know, due to, uh, do you think that is in part the success of Michaela, because that's the demographic you have with that kind of immigrant work ethic? Or do you think this is something that we could extrapolate to the to the coastal, rural, kind of white parts of Britain? Well, it has been extrapolated. Barry Smith, who was our deputy, went to Great Yarmouth and within weeks had completely turned around uh, his very white working class school. Um, and it was very similar to Michaela, uh, as I say, within weeks. Um, but not only that, I've only worked in uh, the in schools like Michaela, in you know, in terms of that demographic in inner London. And I can tell you that um, the behavior was nothing like the behavior at Michaela at, 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 at the various schools that I've worked in uh, with loads of, of ethnic minority kids. Uh, so I think it's just a bit of a myth to imagine that ethnic minority kids are well behaved and interested and and um, and that white kids aren't. Uh, the kids in Great Yarmouth, once they had Barry with these kinds of methods there, uh, transformed. And um, the kids in the schools that I've been in, which are similar demographic, were not very well behaved at all. And our kids are not very well behaved. So what I mean by that is we have to do a whole behavior boot camp with them when they first arrive to get them. So we spend six days with year sevens teaching them how to behave the Michaela way. I mean, all of these things that we do with them obviously have impact. So we sing God Save the Queen, we teach them gratitude, we have silent corridors, we teach from the front, we, we you know, have consistent behavior systems. I mean, all of that stuff is obviously having impact. All of that same stuff that Barry took to Great Yarmouth had impact. All of that stuff that didn't exist at my previous schools meant that, of course, we didn't have this kind of behavior. Um, so it's true that the documentary, the, uh, the, the so you, you in the longer one, you do see a mum... So one child who's sent to us, you see there's a whole other story that they've cut out who isn't engaged in the same kind of way. Um, uh, but we've got loads of, of parents who aren't engaged. I had to put up um, a whole glass screen in the um, reception area because parents would be leaping over the counter in order to uh, uh, try and get their confiscated mobile phones back. I've had to call the police on several parents. I've had, I mean etc etc i mean we have the same uh, nonsense that happens in other inner city schools and i imagine would happen in, in your school so uh, kids are kids really um and if you do all of these sorts of things that we do <laughs> you will find huge improvement in your school wherever your school is and and i'm not saying that theoretically i've had when numerous people tell me, teachers in their own classrooms, head teachers in their schools, who have taken these ideas and have transformed their schools as a result. People in Leicestershire, people in Birmingham, people in Great, Great Yarmouth, people in, um, in, in, in Cornwall. I mean, uh, people in, in, in Suffolk, I don't know, all over the place, really. So uh, this stuff works. It's, it's uh, All I would say is I, I, I realise that 
you know, some people find some of these ideas controversial, but if you're a leader in a school, it's try taking one of those ideas and see if you can implement it and see the difference. If you're a teacher in your own classroom, just try out slant, try and get them to slant, see what difference it makes having them sitting up straight with their hands on their desks. You know, you'll find it transformative. You will. Um, You know, all I can say is try this stuff out. You know, our school has got better and better over the years precisely because of all of these ideas. Does that answer your question, Mr. B? Yeah, sorry, I was just furiously typing away notes there. (laughs) Yeah, no, it was really, um, really good answer. Thank you, Catherine. All right, thanks. Thanks for asking. Brilliant. Last topic, Catherine, for you before we, uh, before I let you go. D, D, or I say let you go. I mean, you can go whenever you want. I mean, you can even (laughs) stay after we finish this last question if you want. Just block it out of your brain. Do whatever you want. Um, But decolonizing the curriculum, huge movement Mm -hmm. in. Uh, not just British education across the water as well. This this move and this drive to 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 decolonise the curriculum. What are your thoughts on that? Because I know you've you've said X Y Z about it. Especially you even mentioned it in the documentary as well. Not in those terms, but you mentioned. I think you used the phrase uh, "dead white men" a few times and the teaching of of the importance of teaching about dead white men. I mean, what is your view on decolonising the curriculum? Look, I mean, if, pe- if people are saying they want to include a black author in some of the things they're teaching, great. You know, I'm all for that. Um, uh, you know, we teach Small Island to our A-level uh, students, took them to the National Theatre to see Small Island. Absolutely fantastic play. You know, brilliant. Um, if what we're saying by decolonization, however, is we want to really uh, reduce the number of dead white men as much as possible, um, I think that is to prevent our most disadvantaged kids if you teach disadvantaged kids you know what if you teach really advantaged kids i don't care so much (laughs) but if you teach the disadvantaged um i think it's our duty to expose them to various cultural icons if for instance you don't know what it is to be a scrooge you don't know uh rose would smell as sweet or you don't know uh if I say to you, please, sir, can I have some more? And you don't know what I mean. We are denying our children uh, cultural um, access to the world. Um, and uh, disadvantaged children need to know this stuff um, in order to have all doors open to them later on in life. And um, so, sorry, we come back to social mobility. If we're in this game to enable social mobility for our poorest and most disadvantaged, then we certainly don't want to prevent them from accessing the stuff that their richer peers will have. (laughs) And the thing is, is that if you're not coming from a household with lots of books and get, you know, you don't get taken to see plays like Small Island and so on, then you're depending entirely on your school to give you access to that stuff. (laughs) And so it's our duty to give them that stuff. And if our white guilt prevents us from giving them all of those cultural uh, icons that will open those doors for them. And I don't just mean, okay, tell them what a Scrooge is. I mean, 
being able to read this literature and appreciate it, um, if they don't have that experience at school, they're never going to have it anywhere because the parents aren't going to be able to make up for it at home. Um, and those parents are entrusting their children to us. And it's a great privilege to have those children in our hands and in our care. And I think it is only right that we should expose them to a variety of dead white men, not only dead white men, but to a variety of dead white men. And the problem with the decolonization is that I think it is rooted in this white guilt that I mentioned earlier. Um, the same white guilt that prevents us from thinking that save, you know, singing God Save the Queen might be an idea, you know, uh, to the point where people are kind of, they're sickened by it, you know, they, they it turns their tummies. And um, you, you've got to ask yourselves why that is the case. Why are we so uncomfortable with who we are? And like I say, I'm not white, so I, I, I'm being sort of critical of a population and I'm not part of that population. Um, but the reason why white people are feeling like this is that they're meant to be trying to help people like me. And I'm saying you're not helping people like me by doing this. In fact, please celebrate that culture. Celebrate um, you, you, the, the great uh, writers who are dead white men. It, it's okay that they're white and that they're, that they're men. The main point about them is that they're dead. That's the important <laughs> thing. They're dead. So, you know, Shakespeare has been influencing literature for over 400 years. I mean, that's why he's important. Not that he's a white guy, but that he's dead. I mean, I, I you know, I, I just wish people would sort of see this and, and champion this because, um, because, look, we're all in the same game. You know, everyone who's listening wants the same things as I do. And what you m must do as a, as, a, as a teacher, as a leader, always, is you have to constantly be questioning, is what I'm doing actually the most optimal to gain the things that I want for my children? Am I managing that? And the only way you're going to know that is if you go and see other children in the same age, for instance, go, you're teaching year seven, we'll go and see some year sevens somewhere else. And obviously you want to go to the places where you think, well, they actually, maybe they're doing better than us over there. Because I've done this many times over. That's how we, we've become Michaela. Many of our ideas have come from other schools. Yeah. So I've gone to other schools and I thought, that's a good idea. I'm going to put that there. Some, a, a guest comes and says, have you ever tried this? And I say, that's a good idea. I'm going to try that. And we're trying things out all the time. You know, it's funny when you were talking about slant because you named all the letters. And I thought to myself, oh, you know, we don't do the nodding thing, actually, the N. We, we decided to change that. And that's the sort of thing that we do. We think, oh, is nodding really the thing we want? Let's change that. Let's try it out. If it doesn't work, we'll try something else. And we're constantly changing our mind about things and constantly judging our, ourselves by what could be better. And that's what we should all do, as opposed to always just saying to ourselves, well, that's what our kids are like. Not much we can do. That's what poor kids are like. That's what black kids are like. That's what white working class kids are like. Oh, well, that, it, 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 that's just the way that they are. It's poverty that does this. Because if someone else is teaching children who are just as poor as your, yours are, and yet they're getting more out of them, then you need to ask yourselves, well, why are they getting more? How have they managed that? Maybe I should be open-minded enough to take some of those ideas and try them in my classroom. And that's what we've been, is open-minded. 
That's why we've changed stuff radically in some ways. In other ways, we've been quite conventional. But the way we, you remember I started off by saying we began school with quiet corridors. We now have silent corridors. That was a change that we made because we looked and thought this isn't working. This is not optimal for our children. What would be optimal? We found the optimal way has been silent corridors with good morning and good, good afternoon to the teachers as they rush along quickly to their lessons and start their lessons in a, in a calm manner where they're ready to learn. Um, and, and if some of the teachers hear that and think, listening now, well, that actually sounds quite good. Well, then maybe it's for us to get over our issue because it's our issue with the silence. It's not the children's issue. Children don't mind silence. It's us that are uncomfortable with us. It's us who are uncomfortable with God Save the Queen. It's us who are uncomfortable with standing at the front of the class and teaching and leading from the front. We are the ones who are uncomfortable with all of these ideas, not the children. And the children are depending on us to be brave enough to do what is optimal for their success. I mean, Kyle has tweeted in saying um, on the issue of the, the, the anthem and so forth, the country has historically done some pretty bad stuff and flag waving is archaic nonsense. <laughs> from Kyle Graham. Any yes, <laughs> but what I would ask him to do is put that thought aside for the moment and think, what, if you think back to the things that I said, what are the benefits? What is it? Why do we do it? Because I'm not, everything I do at Michaela is for a purpose. I'm not just doing it because I like it. That, that, that never happens, right? Never. <laughs> I'm trying to create a certain culture. Everything that happens at Michaela has a purpose. Everything. Every tiny thing, I promise you. From the, the, the hooks on the walls to put their bags, to the work packs that they carry, to the two black pens and the one blue pen in their pencil cases. I tell you, every th detail has been thought about. But what would you say then to people who would say that's stifling and that's too controlling? Because the, the critics would say, well, you know, I think Paxman, when he went round, actually said something like that, didn't he? He said, you know, this would be too stifling for me or something. I can't remember exactly what he said. But some yeah, people would say, well, he didn't want to put his hand up all the time. Um, right. Yeah. Too, too directive, too controlling, too stifling and so on. I mean, many of the critics of that methodology, that, that's the kind of thing they would say, is it doesn't give children the freedom to if you like, I don't know, express themselves or be creative or be, you know what I mean? All those things. Yes. Well, I would say come and see our artwork, come and see our children, uh, read our children's essays, talk to them at lunch and just see how out of the box thinking you get. You will get much more out of the box thinking at Michaela. You will get far more creativity at Michaela. You will get, you know, driven, ambitious, interesting children at Michaela, you know, come and talk to them. You know, the, the thing is, is that, <laughs> and you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to think to yourself, let me compare these children to their equivalents in my school. <laughs> and then you need to think, are they the same? Or are these kids more articulate, more creative, more interesting? Because if they are, then you need to then question, well, why are they that way? Because our kids are just typical inner city kids, right? So you then have to ask why. And I would argue that it's because of the things that we do with them. They weren't that way when they started with us. We make them into that. Now, you might say, yes, but it's better to have just freedom to do whatever you want. 
well, sure. I mean, you could just let kids play video games all day and they'd be free to do whatever they want. But I don't think that that's our role to play with the kids. With a, an adult, I think it's our duty to take away some of their freedom. Of course we should take away their freedom. I, I don't believe that children should be running around school, pushing each other and shoving each other. And well, why teach them at all? Why have them sit in classrooms? Why not just let them do whatever they want? I mean, all of us believe in re restraining their freedom somewhat. Now, the question is, how much of that freedom are you going to take? Now, what's mm. interesting is that the younger a child is, the more freedom you take from them. You don't let four-year-olds cross the street on their own. You don't let four-year-olds pour drink on their own or, or make themselves supper at the, at, 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 you know, in front of the stove. You don't, th that doesn't happen, right? Because you've taken away much of their freedom because they're too young. And then as they get older, you give them more and more freedom. So, of course, our sixth formers have a lot more freedom. They go out at lunchtime. They don't have to wear a uniform. But they've got to that point over time. And the question is, what are we meant to do with children as adults? Are we meant to just let them run free? Or are we meant to build certain habits in them so that later on in life, they find true freedom because self-control sets you free. You know, the ability to have skills and knowledge is going to set you free later. I tell you who is imprisoned for, for all their lives. Children who leave school who are functionally illiterate and functionally enumerate. Children who don't get five GCSEs. They are imprisoned. They are not free. So we feel like we are allowing them to be free when they are young, but when they are older, we are at fault for imprisoning them. Our children at Michaela will never be imprisoned. They will be free because they will have the utmost, you know, sense of decency and kindness and, 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 and gratitude for who they are. They will have brilliant exam results and all kinds of doors open to them. Why wouldn't we want that for all children? Um, Sasha has texted in just on our previous discussion about um, decolonizing the curriculum. Um, she says, does Catherine really suppose the move to develop curriculum diversity and inclusion is purely out of a sense of white guilt? Certainly uh, within uh, history teaching, uh, creating a broad and balanced curriculum is about a true representation of history. It's the right and accurate thing to do. Um, just... I have nothing against a true and accurate portrayal of history. We most certainly do that uh, at Michaela. Um, uh, I think our original obviously, I mean, we would have to actually argue the ins and outs. I'd need to look mm. at their history curriculum and see how it's taught. And is it taught? I would, I would say that it should be taught chronologically. I would say that there are certain key elements of British history that you need to have in there. I would say very much that rather than uh, teaching black history, as it were, which I have to put in inverted commas, but you can't see me doing that um, because I'm doing it with my fingers, if you see what I mean, uh, that you ought to teach British history and make sure that black and brown people, where they appear or in that history, ought to be there and ought to be relevant. Um, but that isn't what decolonization is doing. I wouldn't say we've decolonized the cur curriculum at Michaela, but I would say we very much represent um, uh, uh, in an accurate way, British history. I hope that answers your question, Sasha. But if not, tweet us again, um, Catherine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna honestly let you go if you, if you need to at yes. this point. I'm, thank you. I'm, yeah. Thank you so much for giving up the time. I know everyone here will have really been so interested to hear what you've said on these these issues and these topics. Um, I've been 
you know, listening on bated breath to your replies, it's been absolutely so interesting to hear. I know we've got a lot of people acknowledging that, lots of people giving claps and cheers in the in the chat. We've had over a hundred people right now listening. So that's a lot oh. of people. So Well listen, know. can I say to everyone, they're very welcome to come and visit. You just go on the website, you sign up, um, and you come and have lunch and a tour with you know, kids and You'll see what I mean. I always feel awkward kind of arguing in a vacuum here about Michaela because if you haven't seen it, it and I mean, the, what's great about the documentary is that you have some idea there, but you know, these documentary makers, they're so obsessed with the strictness and going around observing everybody being strict. I mean, if you come to the school, you will see lots of very happy children just uh, being normal and playing basketball and, and, mm. and, and table football. I mean, like, and, and, and plus, you'll be able to see things and think, I'm taking back that back to my school. I'm taking that idea. I'm nicking that. And and that always makes me so thrilled because, uh, you know, it's just great, the idea that, because I know these ideas work. <laughs> so I'm always so happy to hear when other people are making them work for themselves in their own schools and classrooms. Perfect. Catherine, thanks so much. I mean, feel free, if you want to just mute yourself and leave it on in the background, you can do that or you can just okay. check out now. Whatever you want to All do, right. do it. But okay. thanks so much. Thank you, Tom, for having thank, me. Thank you so much. See you later. Bye-bye. Right. Bye-bye. Okay, uh, that was Catherine Burble-Singh, the head teacher of Michaela Free School. I'm now going to invite anybody who wants to come in and talk to come in any reaction to any of it, any further commentary on any of it, any further thoughts on anything that Catherine said, we can we can review it now for the next 20 minutes. I'm going to finish off at about 10 p.m. So if anybody wants to get involved, I've got a caller in straight away, which is Char, Mr. Char MFL. Mr. Char MFL, good evening. You need to unmute yourself, bottom left. can't hear you at the moment i don't think uh while we're waiting for you to try and connect uh, oh my goodness good god i can hear him there's a very violent dog there <laughs> and he's gone <laughs> that was the best call i've ever had on teachers talk radio outstanding stuff who let the dogs out okay uh if anybody else wants to call in and, uh, and and share a thought with me or, or any sort of reflection on anything that was said. Maybe you agree with uh, the singing of the national anthem. Perhaps you disagree with the singing of the national anthem. Perhaps you disagree with silent corridors. Perhaps you agree with them. I, know, I have to recommend to everyone who's here, listen to Khalil's show from Sunday. Khalil Rouse was alone for 90 minutes. Please go on there. Listen to 90 Minutes. Do yourself 90 Minutes of Khalil on his wholesome bill, okay? Talking about it was an amazing show, right? It's on his lonesome, okay? Didn't have any guests, but have a listen to it because actually Khalil covered all this stuff. He covered Silent Corridors. He covered lots and lots of these issues that we've covered today um, in just as much detail as we had today, maybe with some different opinions here and there. Um but certainly it's a, a really interesting listen. That was on Sunday. So if you go on Spotify, click, uh, just go to Teachers Talk Radio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you pod being, wherever you get your podcasts from, go to Teachers Talk Radio. Have a listen to Khalil there. This show and actually all our other Spaces shows are available to listen back on the website now as well. If you go to ttradio.org at the top, 
there's a button that says Twitter Spaces or Listen Back Twitter Spaces, and you you can listen to that um, to any show back. Khalil's here now. Khalil, good evening. Evening, matey. How you doing? Not too bad, lad. Listen, two things to ask yeah, you. Yeah, go on. First of all, reaction to Boris Johnson being saved. That's a bunch of... I saw that crop up on my um, BBC... BBC News gave me a little alert that talks about the vote of confidence. And, uh, yeah, all I did... I, I, so I think some expletives came out of my mouth under my... I would say under my breath. Definitely not under my breath. But there was no one else around, so, you know. Um, I hear you. Second, yeah. second thing... That's your reaction to that. Second thing, any thoughts on anything Catherine was saying? Because there was so much to unpick there. Do, is there anything that you kind of particularly listened to and thought, oh, I've got an opinion on that? Do you know what? The, I, I happen to work in a school that is not too dissimilar in terms of um, the routines and expectations that they have in school. So we have a school, we, I have a school that has silent corridors, for example. And I was speaking about it on the show with regards to silent corridors. And you can't have a zero tolerance on silent corridors, but you can have an expectation um, with regards to how you expect students to move from one lens to another. And the rationale that Catherine gave is the same one we use in our school. And I've not known any different in my school with regards, but I see the kids, but put it this way. So when it's, so when it's break and lunchtime, there are co- as soon as they get to a certain floor where the canteen is, they're allowed to. They're, they're, the corridors turn into inverted commas normal corridors. So the single file lines go out the window. Um, they just they're able to congregate and move how they wish, and you see the difference as soon as they get onto that corridor. Of course, it's break and lunchtime, so it's more of a social time. But the groups congregate. They take our corridors happen to be narrow, so they take up. You have five, as soon as you have about four or five people, that's the whole corridor width done already. So our corridors are silent and single file, half for safety reasons, because we have quite narrow corridors, and secondly, for maintaining focus on learning from between one lesson and another. And it does work for us. Um, but as I said during my show, like, um, if you're going to do silent corridors for it to work, you need to make sure for it to be. For it to work properly, you need to make sure staff are on board with that. And if you are, like, I don't see the point in saying you can't talk to your mates, but then we're going to have a conversation with staff on the corridor. We're going to say, morning, morning, how you doing? How you doing? Yeah, you're right. Hey, how you doing? That's, that yeah. doesn't work. Like, you need, to, you need to go all in, in my opinion, with it. Otherwise, it becomes a bit grey, even with, because you're saying you need to be silent, but unless a teacher talks to you, you can have a conversation with a teacher. Then if you're walking past and a teacher's talking to a kid, you can't chime in or what? Like, it's all a bit... Um, there are some grades there, so I, but what I will say is I agree with the silent corridors in terms of my school does it. Where I started, where she started to lose me was this national anthem and Jerusalem and God Save the Queen and I don't know what other songs they make compulsory. That's where she she lost me, if I'm honest. Um, what? Why is that, Khalil? Um, out of interest, I sing, but I don't think you should make. I don't think you should make any singing compulsory. <laughs> I don't think you should force anyone to sing. And I also don't think you should force anyone to say words such as um, God save the queen. If in your own kind of sense of identity, if you don't believe that or cause she, I think what Catherine was saying was, and I kind of got, she was saying, well, if you were, if you now live in Britain, you need to celebrate Britishness. But I have people in school that have recently come come over from another country. They've only been in Britain for what, like a month or two, for example. Are they now supposed to sing? Yeah. Are they now supposed to adopt the British national anthem and say "Hurrah, hurrah"? Let me celebrate everything that's British that we stand for and that we've achieved. I'm not for it, if I'm honest. I would you would you say would you say 
that because to be fair i didn't ask catherine which i should have what do, what do you do if a student or a member of staff for that matter doesn't want to sing or doesn't want to take part i didn't have to, i should have asked her that yeah. and i didn't i would um i would hope but, but, but my point is this is if if the answer is well that's okay yeah for, for them to not is it still a good thing is it still an okay thing to do in that sense as long as it's not compulsory as long as it's not, yeah. I think it's like the same way when you have with sport, even when you have sporting events and people either opt in or opt out of singing national anthem, as long as it's not compulsory, then I can get why you might do it. Um, I think it's useful to know a national anthem, just if you live in Britain, just yeah. because. Um, but for me, I don't think you should make it compulsory. I don't think you should say to a student, you you are now, you have arrived in Britain two months ago and you must now sing national anthem. I don't agree with that. So then what we're not, I'm not clear on how compulsory it is. Um, well, neither am I because I, I didn't ask to be fair I my view mirrors yours I, I don't see a problem personally I don't see a problem with with students in Britain singing the national anthem if that's what the school decides is, is, is a good thing to do but I don't think that it should be compulsory I think obviously there should be opt-outs if people don't want to do it and so on and so forth but I don't see I don't see it as a problem for you know, for kind of the mass singing of a song, whether it be the national anthem or another song. I, I think there's value in collective kind of, um, I don't know, communal gathering. It's, it's a difficult one. I mean, there's there's multiple views on it. Um, I'm sure Lucy is going to come in. I can almost guess Lucy's views, but possibly not. Lucy, hello. Hello, Mr. Rogers. How are you doing? Not too bad. How's it going? Um, how's it before you before you talk about the national anthem? How's it going? <laughs> how's it going in port in sunny Portugal? <laughs> there's no um, jealousy. It's, it's, there's no jealousy in my voice there. <laughs> I hope you can't detect it. It's it's all right. I'm currently sort of trying to work out if I have shingles or not at the moment, so it's not <laughs> it's not going a hundred percent well. But we're 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 pressing on. Um, Do you have any reflections? Is there anything you'd like to say? Uh, yeah, well, a couple of things. Um, Number one, I am in agreement over the whole national anthem thing. That's just a no. I had a, a, a very sort of visceral reaction to even having uh, flags up in uh, my staff room the other day. So uh, I know you, you were very angry. I was. But I just I think, sadly, the 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 UK or the Union Jack rather has been sort of hijacked in a way and, and become a symbol of sort of uh, the wrong kind of, well, well, nationalism, really, and I'd I'd rather not not see that, and it and, it's, and it is sad, but uh, I certainly, I mean, even though I work in a British school out here, I certainly do not promote Britishness in any way. That being said, of course, you know there are things that we can and should be proud of, but I think there's a way of doing that without sort of plugging singing the national anthem and uh, worship of the royals. <laughs> Hmm. Um, do you think that I mean what is it then that you think that we should do should we have a new song should we you know what's the alternative to that to the, should I we have a new flag all... oh gosh I don't know I think you're getting into complicated territory there I think we should all just do a lovely rendition of Bohemian Rhapsody or Hey Jude I think that'd be that'd be perfect um, 
or Wonderwall, doesn't really matter. I mean, basically something, angels, something that everybody knows the words to, like everybody, no matter where you come from, what genre of music you listen to, that one song that no matter where you are, how much you've had to drink, you know every single word. So like that's the Mr. true, that's Bright, the true spirit Bright, of Britishness, isn't it? You're saying like Mr. Brightside should be the new national anthem. No, 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 it shouldn't because that is by an American artist and therefore that count oh, does not okay. make the cut. Mr. Br- yeah, great. Okay. Tom's got I'm his... What's the song that goes? Ba, ba, ba. What's that? We should get up with a Two things. Do you know what? HB only invited me on to plug my show, and I've already dug a hole for myself. <laughs> yes, Lucy is on tomorrow. Um, she's going to be talking about tearing British flags down and I replacing, replacing the national anthem with Angels by Robbie Williams. Something that everyone I can guarantee get you I'd get some votes on that. I guarantee you they'll be backing. It might not necessarily be Angels, but I guarantee you one of those ones, whether it's Wonderwall, Hey Jude, Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, there, there, there's a long old list of things that definitely could replace God Save the Queen. Um, I'd, like on a, I'd like to God. suggest the Bindley Mega Chippy song. And if the you haven't come across now? the Binley Mega Chippy song, then it will stay in your head for quite a while. HB, you made that up. I mean, what did you think about Catherine's comments on kind of, uh, she mentioned it quite a number of times, is, is this idea of being ashamed of, of, I don't know, being ashamed of Britishness or, uh, I mean, there were certain ethnic elements to it as well. But I mean, what are people's <laughs> thoughts on that? I, yes, and I think that... Like self, like loathe, like self, I don't know how to, I don't know what words I'd use to summarise it, but kind of self-immolation, I don't know what. I think that that has become, you know, there are clear sort of divisions that have, I mean, I think they've always existed, but I think that have arisen even more in the wake of things like Brexit and things like, you know, even the current political situation, it's all yeah. so divisive and creates such sort of enemies within within groups of people where you know there never was before so I do think I mean certainly from from my stance you know that I can kind of wax lyrical about the fact that I'm glad to be out of the UK but at the same time of course there are things I I greatly miss and there are things to that we should be proud of but I think there is a sort of uh I mean from my from my point of view I I the bit that Catherine said about um contextually i i got that in terms of you know i've i've lived in other countries i've visited a lot of countries myself and Mm -hmm. there are a lot of you know i i I kind of got her issue about freedoms and certain things that maybe we take for granted or we don't think about enough i i kind of i i like personally i like that point i get that point because Mm -hmm. i do think there there are things that i mean i moan a lot about brexit and and lots of other things but ult- but ultimately you know there are certain things about the country that are worth recognizing at the very least sure. i'm not going to go as far as, as celebrating no. certainly recognizing and, and a way to recognize that in my opinion is important whether that is as you say we, we can have a million debates about you know the royal family or the mm-hmm. union jack or the national anthem or whatever it is but there has to be some notable, you know, I don't know if, if, if kind of singing angels by Robbie Williams is, is going to be no. like, you know, like the bill of rights in America. Do you know what I mean? Let's, let's replace no, no, the no. bill of rights with, with the lyrics to angels. You know, it's like, it's got to be something 
I don't know, meaningful. I don't know. Maybe I'm just throwing ideas out here. I think you are, but also I think, I mean, and this is definitely a longer conversation, maybe something that could be unpicked in, in another show another time, but when um, Catherine talked about curriculum and the decolonization of curriculum, like we, we have a major problem uh, in terms of the way we're teaching. And this is not everybody, but it is a, it is certainly something I noticed in the UK and even at, I think even at primary level, very much at primary level as well, where we're teaching kind of aspects of history, geography, whatever it is, where we're, we're omitting huge parts of what really went on. And there are sort of certain aspects of it where I've looked back on even things I've told and thought I've kind of teached a very sort of nice and shiny version and sort of very kind of, if you like British version of of this, and I haven't sort of talked about where any where any of this came from or kind of how we ended up where we are. And uh, I'll never forget. There's actually a, a very good very good friend of mine who um, recently was talking to me about when she did uh, history um, at her school in Manchester, and she said, you know, they did all about where you know the, the cotton mills and all the rest of it but nothing to do with where any of that cotton came from or how it originated or how it ended up in the UK and it's just things like that that need looking at more. Nathan's joined us. Nathan do you want to throw in we've got seven minutes for Khalil and Nathan to to riff so let's see what they uh, can do. I was only gonna say you know I'm here sat here in in, in Wales and I think what you're talking about is an English problem you keep kind of saying, you know, and it'd be interesting if there's anyone who from Scotland, you know, or maybe from Northern Ireland. I think some of this, you know, is about the English national anthem, the UK part, because there, yeah. there isn't that identity crisis in the same way here in Wales. Everyone's happy to sing, you know. The, yeah, the I totally Welsh agree. I mean, I lived, I, I lived in Wales for, what, eight years or something, and... I, I, yeah, I didn't see or experience that as in any anywhere near the same way. Um, and yeah, so I agree with you. I agree with you. Um, yeah, cool. Uh, Khalil, anything to add to anything? We've, we've got six minutes, mate, which is, which is 84 minutes less than you riffed to yourself on Sunday. So, you know, let's give the man some respect here. Lucy, you've done solo shows as well, but it's. I tell you what, it's it's hard. But while I've got a minute of your time, I'm just going to plug late show tomorrow. Everybody with go. me from seven thirty. We're talking about actually anything and everything not to do with teaching. So what you lot get up to uh, when you're not in the classroom and all your weird and wonderful hobbies within reason. Ooh, interesting. And guess what's on just before that. You, Nathan. It's me, Nathan yeah. Ginn. That's right. Yeah, I'm on just before that on the Twilight Show, six till seven thirty, right up to the wire. Um, and we're talking about school refusal. So if Ooh. there is anxiety that may come, you know, and people might be listening, thinking actually some of these things that we've been talking about tonight would make children anxious, would would not be great for children with additional needs. We're going to be talking about uh, you know what people think about that and where it can lead to school refusal. That's Interesting I'm stuff. To that. Interesting stuff. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up there. I think the only thing I've got left to say to everyone is: um, Have you checked out Oxford University Press? Is smart curriculum? Because if you haven't, you bloody well should. 
Um, the Oxford Smart Curriculum Service provides secondary schools with an evidence-based curriculum, Key Stage 3 and 4, connects it with resources, assessment, next steps, and CPD, and is powered by Oxford Smart Caboodle. I love that word, Caboodle. Um, so what makes it distinct? Uh, curriculum is seamlessly connected with the resources, uh, and the CPD needed to deliver that curriculum. Uh, all you need to do to find out more about the Oxford Smart Curriculum is visit global.oup.com now i have to recommend this i've checked it out and it is really really cool it's well worth a look at if you're looking to either i guess redevelop your curriculum or start from scratch or whatever it is you're trying to do then definitely check out oxford smart curriculum by oup global.oup.com bloody hell this has been a hell of a show like 90 minutes it has been intense Khalil are you okay do you need a sip of water mate mate I'm Joe up do you know what I mean? let me in the spirit of transparency when I heard you mention my, when you when you mentioned my name earlier I was actually in the shower so it's all very <laughs> <laughs> I didn't need to know that mate okay do you know, do you know I thought I just thought I might paint a picture you're in the wrong space this is, this yeah, is do you know what I mean? Thought, this, but you know what? We've passed. We've passed the uh, what's it called? The watershed. We passed the watershed. So really, <laughs> you know, this is if you want to. If you do want to, you're a sick to man. That. You're a sick <laughs> man. Honestly, I would not let, recommend to anyone listening to my voice in the shower. Honestly, that's <laughs> awful. That's Never say that to me again, Khalil. Please. Sorry, man. I thought. I thought. I thought. What, I a, lovely, what a lovely way to end this show, Khalil. Do you know what? End on a bang. Why not? End on a bang. I listened to Tom in the shower. Brilliant. Okay, everyone. <laughs> thank you very much. We'll be back tomorrow. TT Radio, 11 a.m. Uh, for Graham Stanley and then 6 p.m. onwards for Nathan and Lucy. We'll see you tomorrow. Take care, everyone. See you later. Bye. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.